0: Chapter Two, Part E of The Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book Five, Chapter Two, Part E. Of the Sources of the General or Public Revenue of the Society. Article Three. Taxes upon the wages of labor The wages of the inferior classes of workmen I have endeavored to show in the first book are everywhere necessarily regulated by two different circumstances, the demand for labor and the ordinary or average price of provisions. The demand for labor, according as it happens to be either increasing, stationary, or declining, or to require an increasing, stationary, or declining population, regulates the subsistence of the labourer and determines in what degree it shall be either liberal moderate or scanty the ordinary average price of provisions determines the quantity of money which must be paid to the workman in order to enable him one year with another to purchase this liberal moderate or scanty subsistence While the demand for the labor and the price of provisions, therefore, remain the same, a direct tax upon the wages of labor can have no other effect than to raise them somewhat higher than the tax. Let us suppose, for example, that in a particular place, the demand for labor and the price of provisions were such as to render ten shillings a week the ordinary wages of labor, and that a tax of one-fifth, or four shillings in the pound, was imposed upon wages. If the demand for labour and the price of provisions remain the same, it would still be necessary that the labourer should, in that place, earn such a subsistence, as could be bought only for ten shillings a week, so that, after paying the tax, he should have ten shillings a week free wages. But, in order to leave him such free wages, after paying such a tax, the price of labour must, in that place, soon rise, not to twelve shillings a week only, but to twelve and sixpence. That is, in order to enable him to pay a tax of one-fifth, his wages must necessarily soon rise, not one-fifth part only, but one-fourth. Whatever was the proportion of the tax, the wages of labor must, in all cases, rise not only in that proportion, but in a higher proportion. If the tax, for example, was one-tenth, the wages of labor must necessarily soon rise, not one-tenth part only, but one-eighth. A direct tax upon the wages of labor, therefore, though the laborer might perhaps pay it out of his hand, could not properly be said to be even advanced by him, at least if the demand for labor and the average price of provisions remain the same after the tax as before it. In all such cases, not only the tax, but something more than the tax, would in reality be advanced by the person who immediately employed him. The final payment would, in different cases, fall upon different persons. The rise which such a tax might occasion in the wages of manufacturing labour would be advanced by the master manufacturer, who would both be entitled and obliged to charge it, with a profit, upon the price of his goods. The final payment of this rise of wages, therefore, together with the additional profit of the master manufacturer, would fall upon the consumer. The rise which such a tax might occasion in the wages of country labour would be advanced by the farmer. Who, in order to maintain the same number of labourers as before, would be obliged to employ a greater capital. In order to get back this greater capital, together with the ordinary profits of stock, it would be necessary that he should retain a larger portion, or what comes to the same thing, the price of a larger portion, of the produce of the land, and consequently that he should pay less rent to the landlord. The final payment of this rise of wages, therefore, would in this case fall upon the landlord, together with the additional profit of the farmer who had advanced it. In all cases, a direct tax upon the wages of labour must, in the long run, occasion both a greater reduction in the rent of land, and a greater rise in the price of manufactured goods than would have followed from the proper assessment of a sum equal to the produce of the tax, partly upon the rent of land, and partly upon consumable commodities. If direct taxes upon the wages of labor have not always occasioned a proportionable rise in those wages, it is because they have generally occasioned a considerable fall in the demand of labor. The declension of industry, the decrease of employment for the poor, the diminution of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country, have generally been the effects of such taxes. In consequence of them, however, the price of labor must always be higher than it otherwise would have been in the actual state of the demand and this enhancement of price, together with the profit of those who advance it, must always be finally paid by the landlords and consumers. A tax upon the wages of country labor does not raise the price of the rude produce of land in proportion to the tax, for the same reason that a tax upon the farmer's profit does not raise that price in that proportion. Absurd and destructive as such taxes are, however, they take place in many countries. In France, that part of the tale which is charged upon the industry of workmen and day-labourers in country villages is properly a tax of this kind. Their wages are computed according to the common rate of the district in which they reside, and, that they may be as little liable as possible to any overcharge, their yearly gains are estimated at no more than two hundred working days in the year. The tax of each individual is varied from year to year, according to different circumstances of which the collector or the commissary, whom intendant appoints to assist him, are the judges. In Bohemia, in consequence of the alteration in the system of finances which was begun in 1748, a very heavy tax is imposed upon the industry of artificers. They are divided into four classes. The highest class pay a hundred florins a year, which, at two and twenty pence halfpenny a florin, amounts to nine pounds seven shillings sixpence the second class are taxed at seventy the third at fifty and the fourth comprehending artificers in villages and the lowest class of those in towns at twenty-five florins the recompense of ingenious artists and of men of liberal professions i have endeavored to show in the first book necessarily keeps a certain proportion to the emoluments of inferior trades. A tax upon this recompense, therefore, could have no other effect than to raise it somewhat higher than in proportion to the tax. If it did not rise in this manner, the ingenious arts and the liberal professions, being, no longer upon a level with other trades, would be so much deserted that they would soon return to that level. The emoluments of offices are not, like those of trades and professions, regulated by the free competition of the market, and do not, therefore, always bear a just proportion to what the nature of the employment requires. They are, perhaps, in most countries, higher than it requires, the persons who have the administration of government being generally disposed to regard both themselves and their immediate dependents rather more than enough. The emoluments of offices, therefore, can, in most cases, very well bear to be taxed. The persons, besides, who enjoy public offices, especially the more lucrative, are, in all countries, the objects of general envy, and a tax upon their emoluments, even though it should be somewhat higher than upon any other sort of revenue, is always a very popular tax. In England, for example, when, by the land tax, every other sort of revenue was supposed to be assessed at four shillings in the pound, it was very popular to lay a real tax of five shillings and sixpence in the pound upon the salaries of offices which exceeded a hundred pounds a year. The pensions of the younger branches of the royal family, the pay of the officers of the army and navy, and a few others less obnoxious to envy, excepted. There are in England no other direct taxes upon the wages of labour. Article four. Taxes which it is intended should fall indifferently upon every different species of revenue. The taxes which it is intended should fall indifferently upon every different species of revenue are capitation taxes and taxes upon consumable commodities. Those must be paid indifferently from whatever revenue the contributors may possess, from the rent of their land, from the profits of their stock, or from the wages of their labour. Capitation taxes. Capitation TAXES, IF IT IS ATTEMPTED TO PROPORTION THEM TO THE FORTUNE OR REVENUE OF EACH CONTRIBUTOR, BECOME ALTOGETHER ARBITRARY. THE STATE OF A MAN'S FORTUNE VARIES FROM DAY TO DAY, AND, WITHOUT AN INQUISITION, MORE INTOLERABLE THAN ANY TAX, AND RENEWED AT LEAST ONCE A YEAR, CAN ONLY BE GUESSED AT. HIS ASSESSMENT, THEREFORE, MUST, IN MOST CASES, DEPEND UPON THE GOOD OR BAD HUMOR OF HIS ASSESSORS, AND MUST, THEREFORE, BE ALTOGETHER ARBITRARY AND UNCERTAIN. Capitation taxes, if they are proportioned not to the supposed fortune but to the rank of each contributor, become altogether unequal, the degrees of fortune being frequently unequal in the same degree of rank. Such taxes, therefore, if it is attempted to render them equal, become altogether arbitrary and uncertain. And if it is attempted to render them certain and not arbitrary, become altogether unequal. Let the tax be light or heavy, uncertainty is always a great grievance. In a light tax, a considerable degree of inequality may be supported. In a heavy one, it is altogether intolerable. In the different poll taxes which took place in England during the reign of William III, the contributors were, the greater part of them, assessed according to the degree of their rank, as dukes, marquises, earls, viscounts, barons, esquires, gentlemen, the eldest and youngest, sons of peers, etc., all shopkeepers and tradesmen worth more than three hundred pounds, that is, the better sort of them, were subject to the same assessment, how great soever might be the difference in their fortunes. Their rank was more considered than their fortune. Several of those who, in the first poll-tax, were rated according to their supposed fortune, were afterwards rated according to their rank. Sergeants, attorneys, and proctors at law, who, in the first poll-tax, were assessed at three shillings in the pound of their supposed income, were afterwards assessed as gentlemen. In the assessment of a tax which was not very heavy, a considerable degree of inequality had been found less insupportable than any degree of uncertainty. In the capitation which has been levied in France, without any interruption, since the beginning of the present century, the highest orders of people are rated according to their rank, by an invariable tariff the lower orders of people, according to what is supposed to be their fortune, by an assessment which varies from year to year. The officers of the king's court, the judges and other officers in the superior courts of justice, the officers of the troops, etc., are assessed in the first manner. The inferior ranks of people in the provinces are assessed in the second. In France, the great easily submit to a considerable degree of inequality in a tax which, so far as it affects them, is not a very heavy one but could not brook the arbitrary assessment of an intendant. The inferior ranks of people must, in that country, suffer patiently the usage which their superiors think proper to give them. In England, the different poll taxes never produced the sum which had been expected from them, or which it was supposed they might have produced, had they been exactly levied. In France, the capitation always produces the sum expected from it. The mild government of England, when it assessed the different ranks of people to the poll-tax, contented itself with what that assessment happened to produce, and required no compensation for the loss which the State might sustain, either by those who could not pay, or by those who would not pay, for there were many such, and who, by the indulgent execution of the law, were not forced to pay. The more severe government of France assesses upon each generality a certain sum, which the Intendant must find as he can. If any province complains of being assessed too high, it may, in the assessment of next year, obtain an abatement proportioned to the overcharge of the year before. But it must pay in the meantime. The intendant, in order to be sure of finding the sum assessed upon his generality, was empowered to assess it in a larger sum, that the failure or inability of some of the contributors might be compensated by the overcharge of the rest, and, till 1765, the fixation of this surplus assessment was left altogether to his discretion. In that year, indeed, the Council assumed this power to itself. In the capitation of the provinces, it is observed by the perfectly well-informed author of The Memoirs upon the Impositions in France, the proportion which falls upon the nobility, and upon those whose privileges exempt them from the tale, is the least considerable. The largest falls upon those subject to the tail, who are assessed to the capitation at so much a pound of what they pay to that other tax. Capitation taxes, so far as they are levied upon the lower ranks of people, are direct taxes upon the wages of labor, and are attended with all the inconveniencies of such taxes. Capitation taxes are levied at little expense, and, where they are rigorously exacted, afford a very sure revenue to the state. It is upon this account that, in countries where the case, comfort, and security of the inferior ranks of people are little attended to, capitation taxes are very common. It is in general, however, but a small part of the public revenue which, in a great empire, has ever been drawn from such taxes, and the greatest sum which they have ever afforded might always have been found in some other way much more convenient to the people. Taxes upon consumable commodities. The impossibility of taxing the people, in proportion to their revenue, by any capitation, seems to have given occasion to the invention of taxes upon consumable commodities. The State, not knowing how to tax, directly and proportionably, the revenue of its subjects, endeavors to tax it indirectly by taxing their expense, which it is supposed will in most cases be nearly in proportion to their revenue. Their expense is taxed by taxing the consumable commodities upon which it is laid out. Consumable commodities are either necessaries or luxuries. By necessaries I understand not only the commodities which are indispensably necessary for the support of life, but whatever the custom of the country renders it indecent for creditable people, even of the lowest order, to be without. A linen shirt, for example, is, strictly speaking, not a necessary of life. The Greeks and Romans lived, I suppose, very comfortably, though they had no linen. But in the present times, through the greater part of Europe, a creditable day-labourer would be ashamed to appear in public without a linen shirt, the want of which would be supposed to denote that disgraceful degree of poverty which, it is presumed, nobody can well fall into without extreme bad conduct. Custom, in the same manner, has rendered leather shoes a necessary of life in England. The poorest creditable person, of either sex, would be ashamed to appear in public without them. In Scotland, custom has rendered them a necessary of life to the lowest order of men, but not to the same order of women, who may, without any discredit, walk about barefooted. In France, they are necessaries neither to men nor to women, the lowest rank of both sexes appearing there publicly, without any discredit, sometimes in wooden shoes, and sometimes barefooted. Under necessaries, therefore, I comprehend not only those things which nature, but those things which the established rules of decency have rendered necessary to the lowest rank of people. All other things I call luxuries, without meaning by this appellation to throw the smallest degree of reproach upon the temperate use of them. Beer and ale, for example, in Great Britain, and wine, even in the wine countries, I call luxuries. A man of any rank may, without reproach, abstain totally from tasting such liquors. Nature does not render them necessary for the support of life, and custom nowhere renders it indecent to live without them. As the wages of labor are everywhere regulated, partly by the demand for it, and partly by the average price of the necessary articles of subsistence, whatever raises this average price must necessarily raise those wages so that the laborer may still be able to purchase that quantity of those necessary articles which the state of the demand for labor, whether increasing, stationary, or declining, requires that he should have. A tax upon those articles necessarily raises their price somewhat higher than the amount of the tax, because the dealer, who advances the tax, must generally get it back with a profit. Such a tax must, therefore, occasion a rise in the wages of labor, proportionable to this rise of price. It is thus that a tax upon the necessaries of life operates exactly in the same manner as a direct tax upon the wages of labour. The labourer, though he may pay it out of his hand, cannot, for any considerable time at least, be properly said even to advance it. It must always, in the long run, be advanced to him by his immediate employer in the advanced state of wages. His employer, If he is a manufacturer, will charge upon the price of his goods the rise of wages, together with a profit, so that the final payment of the tax, together with this overcharge, will fall upon the consumer. If his employer is a farmer, the final payment, together with a like overcharge, will fall upon the rent of the landlord. It is otherwise with taxes upon what I call luxuries, even upon those of the poor. The rise in the price of the taxed commodities will not necessarily occasion any rise in the wages of labor. A tax upon tobacco, for example, though a luxury of the poor as well as of the rich, will not raise wages. Though it is taxed in England at three times, and in France at fifteen times its original price, those high duties seem to have no effect upon the wages of labor. The same thing may be said of the taxes upon tea and sugar which in england and holland have become luxuries of the lowest ranks of people and of those upon chocolate which in spain is said to have become so the different taxes which in great britain have in the course of the present century been imposed upon spiritous liquors are not supposed to have had any effect upon the wages of labor the rise in the price of porter occasioned by an additional tax of three shillings upon the barrel of strong beer has not raised the wages of common labour in london these were about eighteen pence or twenty pence a day before the tax and they are not more now the high price of such commodities does not necessarily diminish the ability of the inferior ranks of people to bring up families upon the sober and industrious poor taxes upon such commodities act as sumptuary laws and dispose them either to moderate or to refrain altogether from the use of superfluities which they can no longer easily afford. Their ability to bring up families, in consequence of this forced frugality, instead of being diminished, is frequently, perhaps, increased by the tax. It is the sober and industrious poor who generally bring up the most numerous families, and who principally supply the demand for useful labour. All the poor, indeed, are not sober and industrious, and the dissolute and disorderly might continue to indulge themselves in the use of such commodities, after this rise of price, in the same manner as before, without regarding the distress which this indulgence might bring upon their families. Such disorderly persons, however, seldom rear up numerous families, their children generally perishing from neglect, mismanagement, and the scantiness or unwholesomeness of their food if by the strength of their constitution they survive the hardships to which the bad conduct of their parents expose them yet the example of that bad conduct commonly corrupts their morals so that instead of being useful to society by their industry they become public nuisances by their vices and disorders Though the advanced price of the luxuries of the poor, therefore, might increase somewhat the distress of such disorderly families, and thereby diminish somewhat their ability to bring up children, it would not probably diminish much the useful population of the country. Any rise in the average price of necessaries, unless it be compensated by a proportionable rise in the wages of labour, must necessarily diminish, more or less, the ability of the poor to bring up numerous families, and, consequently, to supply the demand for useful labor, whatever may be the state of that demand, whether increasing, stationary, or declining, or such as requires an increasing, stationary, or declining population. Taxes upon luxuries have no tendency to raise the price of any other commodities except that of the commodities taxed. Taxes upon necessaries, by raising the wages of labor, necessarily tend to raise the price of all manufactures, and consequently to diminish the extent of their sale and consumption. Taxes upon luxuries are finally paid by the consumers of the commodities taxed, without any retribution. They fall indifferently upon every species of revenue, the wages of labor, the profits of stock, and the rent of land. Taxes upon necessaries, so far as they affect the labouring poor, are finally paid, partly by landlords, and the diminished rent of their lands, and partly by rich consumers, whether landlords or others, in the advanced price of manufactured goods, and always with a considerable overcharge. The advanced price of such manufactures as are real necessaries of life, and are destined for the consumption of the poor, of coarse woolens, for example, must be compensated to the poor by a farther advancement of their wages. The middling and superior ranks of people, if they understood their own interest, ought always to oppose all taxes upon the necessaries of life, as well as all taxes upon the wages of labor. The final payment of both the one and the other falls altogether upon themselves, and always with a considerable overcharge. They fall heaviest upon the landlords, who always pay in a double capacity in that of landlords, by the reduction of their rent, and in that of rich consumers, by the increase of their expense. The observation of Sir Matthew Decker, that certain taxes are, in the price of certain goods, sometimes repeated and accumulated four or five times, is perfectly just with regard to taxes upon the necessaries of life. In the price of leather, for example, you must pay not only for the tax upon the leather of your own shoes, but for a part of that upon those of the shoemaker and the tanner. You must pay, too, for the tax upon the salt, upon the soap, and upon the candles which those workmen consume while employed in your service, and for the tax upon the leather, which the salt-maker, the soap-maker, and the candle-maker consume, while employed in their service. In Great Britain, the principal taxes upon the necessaries of life are those upon the four commodities just now mentioned, salt, leather, soap, and candles. SALT IS A VERY ANCIENT AND A VERY UNIVERSAL SUBJECT OF TAXATION. IT WAS TAXED AMONG THE ROMANS, AND IT IS SO AT PRESENT IN, I BELIEVE, EVERY PART OF EUROPE. THE QUANTITY ANNUALLY CONSUMED BY ANY INDIVIDUAL IS SO SMALL, AND MAY BE PURCHASED SO GRADUALLY, THAT NOBODY, IT SEEMS TO HAVE BEEN THOUGHT, COULD FEEL VERY sensibly EVEN A PRETTY HEAVY TAX UPON IT. IT IS, IN ENGLAND, TAXED AT THREE SHILLINGS AND FOUR PENCE A BUSHEL, ABOUT THREE TIMES THE ORIGINAL PRICE OF THE COMMODITY. In some other countries the tax is still higher. Leather is a real necessary of life. The use of linen renders soap such. In countries where the winter nights are long, candles are a necessary instrument of trade. Leather and soap are in Great Britain taxed at three and a half pence a pound, candles at a penny, taxes which upon the original price of leather may amount to about eight or ten percent, upon that of soap to about twenty or five and twenty percent, and upon that of candles to about fourteen or fifteen percent. Taxes which, though lighter than that upon salt, are still very heavy. As all those four commodities are real necessaries of life, such heavy taxes upon them must increase somewhat the expense of the sober and industrious poor, and must consequently raise more or less the wages of their labor. In a country where the winters are so cold as in Great Britain, fuel is, during that season, in the strictest sense of the word, a necessary of life, not only for the purpose of dressing victuals, but for the comfortable subsistence of many different sorts of workmen who work within doors, and coals are the cheapest of all fuel. The price of fuel has so important an influence upon that of labor that all over Great Britain manufacturers have confined themselves principally to the coal counties other parts of the country, on account of the high price of this necessary article, not being able to work so cheap. In some manufactures, besides, coal is a necessary instrument of trade, as in those of glass, iron, and all other metals. If a bounty could in any case be reasonable, it might perhaps be so upon the transportation of coals from those parts of the country in which they abound, to those in which they are wanted. BUT THE LEGISLATURE, INSTEAD OF A BOUNTY, HAS IMPOSED A TAX OF THREE SHILLINGS AND THREE pence A TON UPON COALS CARRIED COASTWAYS, WHICH, UPON MOST SORTS OF COAL, IS MORE THAN SIXTY PERCENT OF THE ORIGINAL PRICE AT THE COAL PIT. COALS CARRIED EITHER BY LAND OR BY INLAND NAVIGATION PAY NO DUTY. WHERE THEY ARE NATURALLY CHEAP, THEY ARE CONSUMED DUTY-FREE. WHERE THEY ARE NATURALLY DEAR, THEY ARE LOADED WITH A HEAVY DUTY such taxes though they raise the price of subsistence and consequently the wages of labour yet they afford a considerable revenue to government which it might not be easy to find in any other way there may therefore be good reasons for continuing them the bounty upon the exportation of corn so far as it tends in the actual state of tillage to raise the price of that necessary article produces all the like bad effects and, instead of affording any revenue, frequently occasions a very great expense to government. The high duties upon the importation of foreign corn, which, in years of moderate plenty, amount to a prohibition, and the absolute prohibition of the importation either of live cattle or of salt provisions, which takes place in the ordinary state of the law, and which, on account of the scarcity, is at present suspended for a limited time with regard to Ireland and the British plantations, have all had the bad effects of taxes upon the necessaries of life, and produced no revenue to the government. Nothing seems necessary for the repeal of such regulations but to convince the public of the futility of that system, and consequence of which they have been established. Taxes upon the necessaries of life are much higher in many other countries than in Great Britain. Duties upon flour and meal, when ground at the mill, and upon bread, when baked at the oven, Take place in many countries. In Holland, the money price of the bread consumed in towns is supposed to be doubled by means of such taxes. In lieu of a part of them, the people who live in the country pay every year so much a head, according to the sort of bread they are supposed to consume. Those who consume wheaten bread pay three guilders fifteen stivers, about six shillings and ninepence halfpenny those and some other taxes of the same kind by raising the price of labour are said to have ruined the greater part of the manufactures of holland similar taxes though not quite so heavy take place in the milanese in the states of genoa in the duchy of modena in the duchies of parma placentia and guastalla and the ecclesiastical state a french author of some note has proposed to reform the finances of his country by substituting in the room of the greater part of other taxes, this most ruinous of all taxes. There is nothing so absurd, says Cicero, which has not sometimes been asserted by some philosophers. Taxes upon butcher's meat are still more common than those upon bread. It may indeed be doubted whether butcher's meat is anywhere a necessary of life. Grain and other vegetables, with the help of milk, cheese and butter, or oil, where butter is not to be had, it is known from experience, can, without any butcher's meat, afford the most plentiful, the most wholesome, the most nourishing, and the most invigorating diet. Decency nowhere requires that any man should eat butcher's meat, as it in most places requires that he should wear a linen shirt, or a pair of leather shoes. End of Book 5 Chapter 2 Part E